Welcome back to today's episode of Ownership Matters, a podcast for homeowners in resident-owned communities, brought to you by Rock USA. I'm Paul Bradley. And I'm Mike Bullard. We have a great guest for you today. We caught up with Tom Powers, the board president of Clackamas River Community Cooperative in Clackamas, Oregon. If that community name sounds familiar, you might have heard our earlier episode with Financial Times global business columnist and associate editor Rana Faruhar. Rana visited Clackamas River Community Co-op as part of the research she did for the two articles she wrote about manufactured housing for the Financial Times. Clackamas River is a great resident-owned community. Mike, uh, you and I have both visited this community many times, and we're thrilled for you to hear our conversation with Tom. Tom Powers is a lifelong resident of Greater Portland, Oregon, and the Happy Valley area. After graduating from Clackamas High School, Tom attended Portland Community College and George Fox University before spending 30 years in construction, first as a contractor for 10 years, followed by a 20-year supervisory career with the Carpenters Union. Tom has three adult children and moved to Clackamas River Community Cooperative in 2012 after the unexpected passing of his beloved wife, Patricia. Tom lived in the community during the purchase process and began serving on the board of directors in 2013, first as operations manager and then as board president, a role he has held since 2014. Tom owns three gold mines in eastern Oregon and enjoys hunting and fishing and especially loves living on the Clackamas River. Well, thanks for joining us on Ownership Matters, Tom. Let's jump right in. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and Clackamas River Community Cooperative? Okay. I uh, am the uh, president here at Clackamas River Community Co-op. I have been doing the uh, presidency for, boy, over six years now. I started out in, uh, when we came the co-op in 2012, I'd moved in about five months before we became a co-op. And uh, in 2013, I joined the board as operations manager. And then in 2014, they uh, talked me into taking over as the president because the president wanted to retire and spend all his time fishing at that point, which (laughs) I can understand that. But uh, So since then, I've been pretty much uh, doing the presidency here with uh, six other fine board members. We have 76 homes here in our community. And uh, we sit on 17 acres of land right on the Clackamas River, which is, I'd like to say, a little corner of heaven here, And uh, which it seems like we do because we really do have a, a good place here. You sure do. Tom, what initially drew you? You said you moved in, in a few months before the co-op took over and, and purchased. What drew you to the community in the first place? The uh, location was the, uh, the primary reason. Uh, I was uh, retired at that point, or semi-retired, and, and still am semi-retired. Uh, always something going on. But uh, I like the fact that it was sitting right on the Clackamas River here, and it's a, a one way into the uh, community and one way out. So it's it's uh, well protected and uh, a lot of trees, and it just uh, I've always wanted to live on the river, and uh, that's where I'm at. So that that's what drew me in. And plus, the opportunity to buy at that time was uh, a good price. Yes, indeed. A river runs through it. It's a beautiful location, Tom. I can see what uh, what attracted you to Clackamas River Community Co-op. No question about that. Tom, I'm, I'm really curious. You've served as president for six years. So, so tell our listeners, what attracts you to that role? What 
motivated you to step up and play this really important role in the community? It's, uh, you know, to start with, uh, my neighbor at the time was president. And uh, like I say, he was looking to uh, to really retire at the time and, and uh, have more time to spend with his wife. And at that point, I could see that it was a, that I wanted to make sure stayed like that it was, which is a, uh, a nice place to live. And uh, our prices here have stayed real consistent. I'm paying $5 more a month now than I was in 2012. So our month premiums, not rent premiums here, because like we explained to everybody when they move in here, they're not renting, they're, they're paying premiums because it's actually part of the mortgage payment and the up. So I think we've done good our keeping it, like I say, $5 higher than it was, what, eight, nine years ago now. That's terrific, Tom. And I echo Paul's sentiments about what a great spot it is. I can't imagine when you were looking to buy a home on the river that there were a lot of places that were any more affordable than Clackamas River Community Co-op. No, there's definitely not. You know, the the, uh, the homes that are on our neighboring parks here, uh, the communities, uh, there's, I mean, we border our property actually borders two other communities of uh, several hundred homes apiece. And uh, the one right next to us, which I probably shouldn't mention the name, but uh, so I won't, I know uh, that they are $300 more per month than we are as of today. So uh, considerable difference. And that uh, was one of the main reasons I liked it here before it was even a co-op. It was still, it was less money and uh, it was still a couple hundred dollars less at that point. And it's, like I say, it stayed. And the chances are with our refinance that we're setting up to do that it's even going to uh, probably be less money in the coming year instead of uh, more. So that's uh, something the board's really been working hard towards. Well, that that is the place affordable and keeping it a nice place to live. Uh, that is spectacular. And you share that with more than a little bit of pride, Tom. I can hear it in your voice. And congratulations to you and the board and the members at Clackamas River that uh, for that accomplishment. I'm curious what you would consider one of your biggest challenges here at this point. What's challenging the community now? This year has been a challenge for us, obviously for everybody with the, the COVID going on. And we started the year out with that and thought, boy, this is going to be a difficult year. And of course, at that point, one of our concerns was, are, are people going to be able to, to afford to continue to live here? Will they be able to make their premiums? And uh, I'm happy to report that uh, people have managed to get by okay. And uh, of course, we've had a, a few cases of COVID that did strike the community, but fortunately, everybody is doing well now. And they were able to quarantine and uh, and we kept it confined there and it didn't spread amongst the community. So that has been a challenge, of course, but uh, we've been doing good on that. And then along came this summer when all of a sudden on uh, Labor Day, the fires broke out in the area. And uh, the, the east wind was blowing and the fire was above us several miles and it was sweeping down the Clackness River. And that was uh, quite the challenge because all of a sudden the air was so smoky that it was, uh, you couldn't see more than about, oh, probably 200 feet was all. I mean, that's how thick the, the smoke was. So people were staying in their homes. We had 
three levels of evacuation in the area, which was a, a one, which is uh, be alert, be ready, and level two, which was uh, be ready to go, bags packed, and they even advised leaving at that point. And level three was a mandatory evacuate. We never hit level three, but we were on level two for probably 12 days. At that point, we had the board members pass around brochures door to door to let everybody know what the procedures were to make sure they had their bags packed and ready to go and to make sure they were okay. And probably 20% of our members did evacuate at that point. The rest of us were ready to, but fortunately we never had to. So that was a, that was quite a challenge this year. Wow. Yes, of course. Add that to the pandemic, which impacted everyone. You, yeah. you and the Oregon co-ops all were experiencing just this added burden. And of course, we've just had the Texas winter storms where the two co-ops in Texas had significant freeze-ups. Yeah, residents' ownership's resiliency has been tested in, in 2020 and 2021 and, and uh, has come through with flying colors, I'll tell you, Tom. And it's your community provides an excellent example of that. So uh, again, congratulations. I think it was on my second trip to Clackamas that I met Tony Weisbecker. And Tony told me, oh, yes. Tony told me straight up that he was opposed to the residents purchasing Clackamas River and that he wasn't shy about sharing his opinion with anybody who was, who was around and was willing to listen. <laughs> he told me he even voted no when the time came. But, and I think the world would, would be a lot better off if there were a lot more people like Tony out there. He said once the residents did buy the community, he put aside his his uh, concerns and he dug right in to help make sure that the co-op was, was going to be a success. And he told me this as we were walking through the neighborhood and he was periodically stopping to pick up some trash or move a branch that had fallen into the street. I remember he even spread a bucket of mulch that he'd been carrying around on a neighbor's yard. And, um, and it was just really that sign of, of, of lead by example that you'd want to see. And I know Tony died about five years ago, uh, sadly. And, and I'm wondering, Tom, did you know Tony? And did you see that transformation in him? Was, was that a common, was his point of view common in the community? Yes. Yes, I did know Tony. In fact, Tony was one of those that, uh, he was one of our uh, first board members, ironically, that uh, shortly after we became a co-op, he became a vice president there of the board. And uh, he was uh, very responsible for getting me into the board as a board member myself. And Yes, I was the same way uh, when we had our meetings in the library there in uh, 2012. Uh, decided I've only been living in the park for about five months at that point. It was, uh, felt like I was totally blindsided going, what, what's going on here? Uh, I thought I was moving into a community where I didn't have to worry about things changing. And uh, slowly, you know, I was one of those that was trying to decide whether or not to vote yes or no to uh, become a co-op. And uh, as they explained things, we had several meetings there where we all met there. It seemed like there was about a hundred of us packed into a small room there. I remember we had good turnout from the community and they would explain things. Uh, we'd ask questions and Casa was there and Rock was there and, and did a very good job explaining things and maybe too good of a job because me being the nature I am, my first thing was, is I'm thinking, this sounds too good to be true. 
And I, you know, I almost voted no at that point because I thought if something is too good to be true, it can't be true. But uh, it turns out that it really was a good thing for us to do. And it was the right thing for us to do. And unfortunately, I went through with flying covers on the uh, buying the co-op. But there was a lot of people that uh, even at that point, that it, there was a few members that held out from joining the uh, membership of the co-op. But that soon changed a few months down the road, too. But uh, a lot of us were thinking, oh, boy, is this good or is this not good? And uh, as time went on, it's proved out to be the best thing we could have done. Everybody at this point seems to be really happy with our decisions. And Tony was very much, when he got pushing for the co-op and uh, helping people, he was very much one of the best leaders there on uh, getting things going the right direction. We, we greatly miss that man. He sure was a terrific co-op leader. I, I miss him as well, Tom. And you've obviously continued on in a similar fashion. I was at the first meeting in the library. Yeah. And uh, I don't go to many first meetings, but I, I went out specifically because the rent increase that was going to be required to for the co-op to purchase at the time was going to set a record for any co-op buying their community and raising the site fees. And so I wanted to make sure people understood the situation, had full access to all the information they needed to make an informed decision, which is our process. But, you know, the, the, this was an interesting, interesting one for the local team at CASA. So I was there, and uh, so I'm glad you felt it was informative, Tom. The, the increase, though, you know, I, I recognize was was challenging. At the same time, of course, this was a community owned by a local developer, uh, Mr. Fingerhut, who, uh, by all appearances, was a very responsible owner-operator. And it actually kept the site fees below those abutting properties by a fair margin over the years. But, of course, when the community sells, it trades at a market value that, is based on market rents in the area. So that's what the co-op was competing against, of course, uh, which is a lot to understand for a new group. But um, I'm curious, in hindsight, you say it was, obviously it's worked out, people now see it as a good thing. Was that really at the root of what the challenge was uh, for the group thinking through whether to purchase or not? That was uh, one of the big one of the big things for the people to park. Ironically, uh, like I say, I've only been here for a, a few months at that time. So when I moved in, I, w- I came in, I found out later on that I came in at a higher rate than everybody else. So it wasn't as much of an obstacle for me. Like I said, I was basically uh, paying $100 more a month than everybody to start with because that was the new rates that Finger Hut was bringing in at the time. But everybody else was not. So that uh, it was a challenge for people to... Uh, to want to spend the extra money and also the uh at the time a few people were strapped for cash or even a hundred dollar co-op buy-in seemed like a lot to them and uh it was nice because uh rock and casa both let people even make payments on that part if they wanted to that uh, they could take their time getting the co-op payment in the one-time fee of becoming the membership there but it was a hurdle for people a lot of people were mumbling going boy i don't know if i can afford the hundred dollars and uh more a month and uh but at the same time they realize wait we're going to own the property ourselves 
And now we don't have to worry about another corporation coming in and turning this into uh, apartments or condominiums. So that was a, a big plus for us there, the security of knowing that we were going to be what we are now and always be that. And I think the, the security thing of knowing that we could always have our places here on the river and uh, be self-governed and self-owned, that was the big point that, that won people over. Wow, that's that's the name of the podcast for a reason, Tom. Ownership matters, no question about that. I'm yeah. curious from your now looking back standpoint, what your feelings are towards Mr. Fingerhut, who didn't have an obligation to sell the community to the homeowners, but opened himself to the process of, of you all uh, getting organized, making an offer and purchasing the community. For him, what I can tell you is this really was a part of his legacy. He was proud of the affordable housing he had provided and uh, the opportunity he was providing you. Looking back on it now, how do, what do you think of his actions and his, his work through that process? I think it uh, was very remarkable to to have uh, someone like that, that uh, he even had offers for more than what we offered him. And he believed in what was happening with the co-ops. And he made it possible for us to do that without his cooperation on that. If, you know, a lot of developers would say, okay, I'm, I'm getting another half a million for this. Uh, why would I want to? sell to the co-op but he he did care about the residents here so i think it was uh we were very fortunate that he was the one that we bought the part from i agree with you on the community part and i agree with you on your sentiments towards mr fingerhut i would note uh, for our listeners oregon has a state capital gains tax break for community owners that sell to a resident cooperative so that the remarkable thing about Mr. Fingerhut is he accepted the tax benefit as a, as how he analyzed the final price. So he he got the same net money by selling to the co-op as he would to a third-party investor buyer. But with the capital gains tax break, he accepted a lower price from the co-op. Uh, that's not how those negotiations always go. Uh, sometimes they still go at fair market value and the seller pockets the capital gains tax break. But he really was a, a fair and, and honest uh, gentleman who really did want to sell to the homeowners, Tom. And I'm, I'm glad that that's the overriding uh, feeling in the community because I'm sure that it would be very satisfying for him to know. So, Tom, the as you said, one of the big hurdles there was the rent increase in, in people's decisions, whether or not to vote yes or no on the purchase. But you've also said since 2012, the rent has only gone up $5, which is really incredible figure, particularly considering all of the improvements and upgrades and projects that you all have done to transform the community there. Can you tell us about some of those? Yes. We are very fortunate here that, uh, that uh, when we uh, became a co-op, there was money that was set aside also. We had a slight erosion problem going on the, the uh, Sabin Creek or Seben Creek, depending on how you want to pronounce it, where there had been a home that had been actually lost there uh, in previous years. Uh, I'm not quite sure. I think it was like three or four years before 2012 that they lost the home due to erosion there. And so we had a problem there where uh, 
we needed to uh, secure that bank along there, along the creek. And we had money set aside in the financing to where we were able to take that on. And in uh, 2000, I think it was 2016, where we actually did the work there and had tons of boulders brought in. I think it was uh, 30 large dump truck loads of big rock that was brought in to shore up the bank there. Wow. And uh, they did a lot of work there and secured our park there at that point. Then since then, we had a woman who was our secretary at that point, and she resigned from the secretary position in order to start writing grants and uh, getting grants to uh, to do some work here. And I shouldn't say she resigned. Uh, she did resign from secretary, but she still works full time as a nurse, too. So she's a very busy woman. <laughs> wow. She was able to uh, obtain some grants for us to where they turned uh, our Huckleberry Park, which is the lower part of our park along the Clackamas River here. And it's seven acres, basically, of the uh, flood zone there, the 100-year flood zone. And uh, they were able to, uh, at that point, it was blackberries invasive species and uh, things that they don't want along the Clackamas River. But she was able to uh, get some grants from Western, uh, uh, let's see, the Watershed Environmental Services, OWEB, which is Oregon Watershed Enhancement Board, Nature in the Neighborhood, and uh, we have one here also from uh, CRISP, which I'm not even sure what that stands for, but they are the ones that do our weed control down in the park down there to uh, to eliminate the uh, invasive species. In all total, uh, there is close to $700,000 worth of grant work is on the books for the next four years. And uh, that that's thanks to one volunteer writing grants. And I remember the time when she said she was going to start doing that. I almost told her, well, well, don't waste your time. Nobody gets those grants. But I never said that because uh, she's done wonders with that in getting uh, the different places to come in and start doing the work. They've removed the blackberries. They put in, I think it's almost a half a mile of the hiking trails down there for us. Oh, wow. And, uh, and they're going to uh, do some dredging on the Sabin Creek area there to restore the salmon and uh, steelhead habitat run there, which uh, helps with our private fishing hole there, too, at the same time <laughs> as a side note. <laughs> so, so, of course, I was all for that. I'm sure. <laughs> but, but, yeah, that, that actually is starting that, that dredging of the uh, area there and, and opening that up to the salmon habitat is starting here in the 1st of June. So that, that's one of the big ones. It's a half a million dollar grant there that they're starting on that got a meeting on it tomorrow in fact but that's getting started right away but uh, i would say to other communities uh it's worth going after your grants i was never a believer in that but boy i sure changed my my opinion on that now tom so so clackamas river played a pretty big part in an in-depth report in the financial times uh, a little over a year ago now rana faruhar who wrote that piece and a second one about uh, manufactured home community sector is actually another early guest on the podcast here. But in that piece, she compared Clackamas River with a nearby commercially owned community. It might've been the one you referred to a little bit ago. And she wrote that residents there 
have a far less optimistic view than you and your neighbors at Clackamas River. And that even, even that community itself, the, the homes, the public spaces and so on, seem to be suffering by comparison. Do you ever run into residents from some of those other nearby communities? And what are they saying? Are they, I don't know, are they a little envious of what you all have with the co-op? Yes. Yes, to, to both those questions or all those questions. Uh, as a matter of fact, I'm doing a move in here next week with new residents in the park here that have just uh, purchased a home here in our community. And uh, they are coming from that neighborhood community that you're referring to. And uh, they are so thankful to be moving from over there to over here. Tom, there's a ton of really unfair and, and I'd say uneducated stigma out there about both manufactured housing and, and worse, the people who live in manufactured homes and manufactured home communities. What do you think is the biggest misconception out there? You know, I think there's a lot of uh, people think that uh, manufactured homes is uh, quite often not well taken care of and uh, that, uh, that people there do not have a sense of community or a sense of pride in ownership and uh, that, uh, you know, that we're, we're giving a bad image because of the fact that uh, I'm sure that they've seen too many TV shows that will show manufactured home parks that are that are really run down and cars parked all over the place and, uh, you know, rusting away in the fields. And uh, I think the general misconception is that uh, all manufactured home communities are that way. But a lot of that is control of uh, how the board runs things, too, in the way that uh, Rock sets up the uh, meetings for us and CASA helps us with our meetings and uh, it's just a lot of involvement by the community and involvement with CASA helping us with our questions and Rock helping us with our questions and guiding us along, which uh, we had a lot of them at first. And uh, we had a lot of help and we still get a lot of help in uh, taking care of our community. And people take the pride in ownership now and they know who their neighbors are. They check on their neighbors. And we've had some really good potlucks before COVID down in our Huckleberry Park, too, where people get together and, uh, you know, we talk and, uh, you know, and just have a good time together. So uh, it's a community and it's not a uh, it's a group of people that uh, anywhere from retired to ones that have uh, one year old kids or babies. And uh, so we're a, a diverse community and everybody. Uh, does their best to try to get along with each other. And you can see that here in our manufactured home park. You've mentioned so many important elements of what makes a, you know, functional, successful neighborhood, Tom. And I really appreciate hearing in several of your stories today, the ways in which neighbors look out for one another, connect with one another during uh, the pandemic during the forest fire threats or the ice storm threats and get news out and uh, and work with one another for community benefit and community potlucks, which are just phenomenal. And I know you hosted a community potluck the day that the Financial Times reporter was there. And I can tell you, you left a strong impression on her about uh, what it means to live in a resident-owned community. So, Tom, last question this is really just an opportunity for you as a 
clearly successful cooperative leader. What advice do you have for other cooperative leaders, whether that's a, a brand new co-op coming together to purchase their community or a, you know, a, new, a new co-op? What does the seasoned Tom Powers have to say to, from your experience? In a community, uh, the board members need to realize that they are just another member of all the other residents there. And that uh, we're not above, we're not below. We're just there helping organize what's going on in the community, but that does not give us really any special place uh, except for to uh, make sure the communications happen. And I think that's the uh, another big element is communicate with your neighbors, communicate with your residents. And uh, one of the things we also always tell is people to be involved when they first move in here, become a co-op member. We'll have a, a probably one to two hour moving conference with them with a couple of board members involved and just tell them what it means to be in a co-op and uh, that they're buying into a community and that we need participation from everybody that lives here working together and helping that we don't have people paid to do a bunch of the work around here, but it takes involvement from everybody involved and everybody that lives here. And I think those are probably some of the key things to becoming a successful co-op. And of course, having a, a good bunch of volunteers on the board has always been a, a real blessing for us here. Probably you have that vibrant board in part because of the fair and consistent leadership, the real emphasis on communications that keeps people involved, and then welcoming that in involvement. It's all part of creating a deeply engaged community. Tom, truly, congratulations, and thank you so much for your leadership out at Clackamas River and really across the Rock USA network with such great insight and just really exceptional ongoing leadership. So thank you for joining us on Ownership Matters today. I really enjoyed the conversation. I'm sure Mike did. And Tom, all the best to you and your neighbors. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the opportunity to share like this and to be able to communicate to the rest of the Rock Association about the privilege we have of uh, being part of this great organization here of uh, resident-owned communities. is uh, It's worked out wonderful for us. And thank you for being able to allow me to have time to share like this. Rock on, Tom. And there it is, our conversation with Tom Powers from Clackamas River Community Co-op. Paul, it was so interesting to hear his evolution from skeptic to board president and the comparisons to the community next door. What a What a stark difference, especially in the monthly fees, huh? Uh, no question, Mike. And, you know, they're investing in the community. Uh, the work they've done along the river is just spectacular. They've really built an amazing neighborhood, and it's on the legacy of a really remarkable community operator, too. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of Ownership Matters. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone. Talk soon. <laughs>